Right, go ahead and open your Bibles uh, to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verse 42 this evening. Just the one verse. Um, I see that we have a, a couple of visitors here this evening. Uh, what we do uh, at this church, generally speaking, is we choose a book of the Bible and then verse by verse, chapter by chapter, go through the whole book. And then when we're finished with that, we pick another book. <laughs> and that, that's kind of how we do things here. So you're coming to us uh, as we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, and again, we're in chapter 9, verse 42. And tonight we come to a verse um, from the lips of our Lord Jesus that deals with the issue of causing our fellow Christians to sin. Uh, to begin, have you ever considered how your life affects other people? Um, have you ever thought about the, the fact that the way you live, the attitude you have, the things that you do, the things that you don't do, the way that you speak, the advice that you give, everything you do actually affects more people than you. Have you ever thought about that? Because it's, it's true. You know, often our lives have a greater impact on others than we realize. It's been wisely said many times that no man is an island. Right, nobody just lives it, it, to themselves, right, as isolated from others. The actions of one person, however small the actions may seem to be, or how, however little of an influence that a person may seem to have on society at large, nevertheless, the actions of one person affects other people, often many other people. And this can be for the better or for the worse, but I want you to know for a fact that the things that we do and the way that we live have an effect on people. Um, an example of this, uh, imagine a man, a professing Christian, commits adultery against his wife. His wife is affected, his children are affected, his community may be affected if he holds any uh, standing in the community. Um, since he's a church member, his church will certainly be affected. People will be hurt, trust will be broken, a marriage very well may dissolve. The community may begin to despise the faith even more since this man who committed adultery professed to know Christ. The church will be devastated, shocked, and hurt by this man's actions. The man's adultery would have a far-reaching effect on other people beyond himself. Or more positively, let's say that a man leads his family in family worship throughout the week, as I hope you guys are doing. Um, but this man's wife and children then would be exposed to the word regularly. The law and the gospel would be proclaimed daily in the home. Prayers would be offered up to God each day. Holiness in the family would be encouraged. And the children would begin to see that mom and dad take the faith seriously. And that they really are disciples. And that being a Christian is not just a Sunday activity. And so the children, at the minimum, would begin to take the faith more seriously into consideration as they grow older. And if, by God's grace, those children are converted, they would know that the faith is a daily thing, and they would begin to live it out in the world. And it would begin to have an effect on others. And then those children would pass on the godly habit of family worship to their children, and on, if God is pleased to convert more, and on. And generations and potentially hundreds of people could be affected because one man led his family to know and worship God. It's amazing. Just real quick aside, fathers, Lead your family. Lead your family in family worship if you're not. And if you want to know how to do that, come talk to me. I know I've talked about it before, but anyway, that's not what the sermon's about. But these are just two examples 
And the list could obviously go on, but you get the point. The way that we live and the things that we do have a strong effect on others around us, and that has a lot to do with our text this evening. The things that we do, the way that we live, the doctrine that we believe and teach, the example we give, all of it affects our brothers and sisters in Christ. And as we're going to see from this verse, our Lord takes that very, very seriously. In fact, the verse before us this evening is a warning. It's a warning to all who would cause a Christian to sin. It's a warning of certain condemnation for those who would hurt the people of God and cause them to be unfaithful to Christ and his word. And so we must listen to and heed the words of our Lord Jesus here, lest we cause one another to sin and bring the wrath of God down on ourselves. So this verse is a warning, yes. But at the same time, by the end of our time together in this text, I think you will also see that this warning from Christ is also a great encouragement to Christ's people because it tells us how much he loves us. So we're going to get there too. Now, if you would and you're able, please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible word of God. Mark chapter 9 and verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we come before you this evening and we ask that you by your Holy Spirit, would awaken our hearts to your word. Set the truth home to us. Apply it to us. Help us to hide it deep in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Help us to heed your warnings and fear your threatenings, and in so doing, persevere by your grace. Help us to hear the voice of our Lord Jesus Christ preaching to each of us as his word is proclaimed, and help us to listen to him as you command. Grant us soft hearts this evening. Grant us repentant hearts. Grant us also the knowledge of free and full forgiveness through faith in Jesus Christ. Remind us, God, that you wound us with the law in order to heal us with your gospel. In other words, God, do in us what needs to be done this evening. We ask for this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So uh, some context here. Beginning in verse 33, uh, the Lord Jesus has been teaching his disciples what true greatness consists of. He's been telling them what true greatness looks like. And he's been telling them and us that true greatness in the kingdom of God, true greatness in the eyes of God, is welcoming, receiving, serving, caring for, treating well all who follow Jesus. And Jesus characterizes those who belong to him as little children. He says so in verses 35 through 37. And these little children are those who seem insignificant to the world, but are very precious to Jesus because they are his. So again, receiving the little children, receiving Christ's people is what the theme has been. And now in our verse this evening, Jesus is going to tell us another aspect of what it means to receive and serve his people. And this aspect of service and care for his people has to do with guarding their souls. 
It has to do with the spiritual good of his little children. In particular, it has to do with not causing the people of God to sin. So the main thrust of this verse is is this. Part of what it means to serve one another is to care about one another's spiritual well-being. So there's your thesis statement, maybe. So let's go ahead and read our short text again. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The text is quite simple, but to make sure that we understand it well, what I'm going to do is I'm, I'm going to break it down this evening uh, by asking and answering a series of questions. You guys know I love Q&A sessions. That's kind of what this is going to be. Uh, f- first, what does it mean to cause one of these little ones to sin? Uh, well, let's first consider that word sin in our translation. Um, the word that the ESV, or our translation that we use here, The word that the ESV translates sin here is actually a Greek word that means stumble. So the text more literally reads, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. But the idea is that the person is stumbling into sin, right? Think Romans 14, 1 Corinthians 8, where we're commanded not to put a stumbling block in front of our brothers. It's don't cause them to sin. So our translation gets the meaning of the phrase correct, but it's stumble. So I'm going to be using the word stumble a good bit this evening. Um, But again, this stumbling is causing someone to stumble into sin. Uh, Steve Lawson put it this way, if repentance is turning away from sin and to Christ, then causing someone to stumble is turning them away from Christ and towards sin. It's causing someone to fall off the path of righteousness and stumble into unrighteousness. To cause someone to stumble is to cause them to be unfaithful to Jesus in some way. And again, this is a broad concept. I think that it can mean a couple of things that aren't mutually exclusive. Um, It could mean to cause someone to commit a form of apostasy, a forsaking of the faith. Now, don't get me wrong, right? God will save his elect. All those for whom Christ died will certainly be saved. We believe that. But... Believers can fall into faithlessness and practically abandon the faith for a season. We have seen that. We've seen that. But God, again, we believe that he will faithfully bring his people back to Christ before they die because he's faithful to his covenant. But nevertheless, a stumbling block could be set up before even a genuine believer that causes them to commit temporary apostasy. And that could be part of what's in mind here causing someone to stumble so as they fall away for a time. But that's not all that this means. This stumbling, as I said, is very broad. So at least it means any kind of stumbling. Rather, not at least, broadly speaking, it means any kind of sin, whether it be a sin of word, thought, or deed, a sin of commission that you go and do something, or a sin of omission where you don't do something, a sin of disbelief, right? not believing something in the word of God. You get the idea. This can be any sin, not just stumbling so as to fall into apostasy. Um, So it's broad, and it means to cause a person to sin in any way. I I know I'm I'm, I'm beating that that horse to death, (laughs) right? Any way, sinning in any way. But maybe you're sitting there and you're thinking, as I do, I like to ask questions when I read the Bible. Um, What does Jesus mean by cause someone to sin? Right? Because one person cannot make another person sin. 
Me and you will talk about that after. Me and you can talk. Questions? They're cool. Ask me questions after the sermon. No, you're okay, man. I ain't mad at you. Um, people ask, well, what does it mean to cause someone to sin? Because you can't make another person sin, right? Even if someone, theoretically, were to put a gun to your head and say, sin or I'm going to kill you, you still make the choice to sin. You, maybe you did so under duress, but that person did not make you sin. You still chose to do so, which I understand that's a complicated situation, imperfect analogy, but you get what I'm saying. So the idea that you can't make another person sin, if you're saying, well, what does Jesus mean to cause them to sin? I would say that you're right in some sense because no individual can actually force another individual to disobey God. Nobody can force you to sin. And the Bible says that the individual is always, always responsible for his or her own sin. Ezekiel chapter 18, very famous verse in there. The soul that sins shall die. Right? So God always holds the individual responsible for his sin. So what does this mean then to cause someone to sin? Well, while one person cannot literally force another person to sin, a person can play a role in another person's sin. In the, here's what I mean. In the parallel account in Matthew's gospel in chapter 18, right after Jesus says this verse here, we read this in Matthew 18, 7. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come. But woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. And I think that that helps clear things up a bit. To call someone to sin, at least in part, means to tempt someone to sin. An old commentary that I read, I really appreciated this, said that to call someone to sin means to give occasion for someone to sin. Right? So, so then, to call someone to sin means to tempt, give occasion for, play some kind of role in advocating for, encourage to, or do anything whatsoever to play any kind of part in someone else's sinning. So then, while the one who does the sinning, I can't stress this enough, the one who actually does the sinning is responsible for his own sin, while that's true, the one who in any way assisted or played a part is also guilty of sinning, and according to Jesus, can be said to have caused the person to sin. They helped to foster the sin. All right, so there's that. Another question, who is Jesus concerned for in this text? And now that we've seen what it means to cause someone to sin, who is Jesus concerned for here? Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin. It's the little ones who believe in Jesus that Jesus is concerned for. And as I said earlier, given what Jesus has said in verses 35 through 37 about any lowly believer being represented by a little child, Right, so little children are lowly believers. And considering in this verse, Jesus here says that the little ones believe in him, we take all that together and see that Jesus is speaking about any Christian. Not children in general, but he's speaking about Christians, the little ones who believe in him. So then to rephrase what Jesus says here, whoever causes a believer to sin, whoever causes a Christian to sin, he is supremely concerned with his people in this verse. And notice that Jesus says, whoever causes one of these little ones to sin. The one means anyone. Any one of his people. Not just the twelve. right? Not just ministers. Not just deacons. right? But this concern of Christ reaches far down to the most seemingly insignificant Christian. 
right? The regular Christians, right? And this tells us that Jesus cares for all of his people the same amount. Let me encourage you real quick if you're going through anything right now. Jesus cares for all of his people the same amount. In his wisdom, he does not do the same things for all of us, and we often do not know why. It's in his holy wisdom that he does not give us all the same blessings. He doesn't do the same for us all, but he cares for us all the same. He absolutely loves all of his people. Every Christian is counted as one of his little children. So Jesus here is stressing, back to our text, the importance of not making any of his people stumble into sin. But the next question, who is Jesus addressing here? Who is he giving this warning to? Who is this admonition being given to? In a word, whoever. Whoever causes one of these to sin. So this warning is for anyone who would cause any of his people to sin. And this certainly applies to the unbelieving world around us, does it not? I mean, certainly. There are many haters of Christ in the world. There are many people who hate Christ and his people and would love to see us fall into sin and forsake Jesus. And so there are many tempters in the world. There are many who try to entice Christ's children to sin. There are many who would try to cause us to abandon him, right? Just look around. Turn on your television, right? Our, our culture seems dead set on bringing ruin to the souls of all. Um, the advertisements at the colleges, with, with respect to a few professors there who, who follow Christ in general, uh, the academy is godless, uh, media in general, almost all forms of entertainment. Um, not that the entertainment mediums are intrinsically sinful all the time, but much of it promotes godlessness. The political system, like the things that are getting passed in, in through our federal and state governments, all of it seems diabolically designed to, and when I say, I mean satanically designed to bring about the downfall and ruination of souls, especially that of the people of God. There are certainly hosts of temptations and tempters in the world that want to cause the little ones of Christ to sin. But looking closely at the context here, Jesus is not specifically addressing the world. This is a conversation. Verse 42, we're jumping in on a discussion between Jesus and his disciples that began in verse 33. So that means that this warning is specifically addressed to Christians. This warning is specifically given to Christians. This call to not cause Christ's people to sin is given to Christ's people. That, that, that's kind of shocking, isn't it? As I said toward the beginning of the sermon, one of the ways that we love and serve and receive one another is by taking care to not cause one another to sin. That's the context that this is in. But this should make us sit up straight and listen because this warning is specifically for Christians. Again, Jesus says whoever, so this has application to the world at large uh, as well, but it is intended for our ears first. It's said to the disciples. So it's of high importance for us to know that we are not to be the cause of our fellow Christians sinning. We are not to be the occasion for anyone's stumbling. And that brings us to a very natural question, I think. How might a person cause a Christian to stumble? How might one Christian cause his fellow Christian to sin. Now, in our text, Jesus does not tell us 
how we might make another Christian stumble. He just tells us what the fate of those who do is, and by implication, that we must not do it lest we suffer that fate. And so I think that means that he intends us to ponder this. Jesus intends us to think about this. Remember, Christianity is a thinking man's religion. It's for the simple as well as the learned, but God expects us to meditate and think upon his word. Read Psalm 1. He intends us to ponder here all the ways that we could possibly cause someone to sin. And so, I have some examples for us to consider together this evening. Um, some examples of how we could cause our fellow Christians to sin, and some of them might annoy some of you, but I love you enough that I don't care. Um, now, a, a quick note before I begin. I'm going to be saying you in these examples for the purpose of being able to preach directly to anyone who might be doing these things. All right? But I want to be clear that I'm preaching to myself too. I had to write this. Right? I'm preaching to myself as well. Uh, we, we all need to hear and heed the words of Jesus. And it's going to be beneficial for all of us, especially me, to hear these examples. I have six for you. First, you could cause a fellow Christian to stumble by discouraging, condemning, and excluding them. Uh, this, this might actually be what Jesus specifically had on his mind when he uttered this warning in this particular context. Right? You, you'll remember that in verses 39 through 41 that we looked at last week, there was a discussion about how the twelve tried to stop a man who was also a Christian and doing mighty works in Jesus' name. So maybe it's this kind of exclusionary, censorious attitude that Jesus has in mind here. Beloved, I, I hope you know that the way you treat your fellow Christian can be a cause to their temporarily falling away from Christ. I hope you know that. Again, God will save his people, but you can be a cause for someone falling away. There are many stories, uh, one in my own family personally, but there are many stories of Christians being so excessively harsh and unfairly judgmental and condemning toward fellow Christians that the abused brother or sister leaves the church and for a time abandons following Christ. I don't have to tell you stories. You've heard such things, I'm sure. You can be so harsh and ungracious toward a fellow disciple that they no longer want to be a disciple because you have, by your meanness, clouded their vision so much that they can no longer see Christ. It's possible. It happens. Or you can discourage an eager baby Christian so much that they are hindered from following after Christ. That, that you put water on their zeal. You douse their fire that they have. And they become so discouraged that they forget the great grace of the Savior and give up. Or you can exclude a Christian from your personal group and make them think that they have no place in the body of Christ. So they begin to try to look for a place in the world. You can do these things. Now I want to be clear. I don't mean that you confront a brother in his sin and you do it properly with humility and gentleness and, and respect and he gets angry with you, doesn't want to repent and leaves the church. That's not what I'm talking about. In such a situation, that's completely on him. You didn't do anything wrong. 
I'm talking about treating a brother or sister ungraciously, not accepting them, being unfair toward them, not letting them in, not showing them kindness or mercy in their sin, not listening to them, and in a sense, running them off. Now they're leaving. They're abandoning Christ. Their sin is on them. But if you played a part in it, you're guilty of causing one of these little ones to sin. A second example, uh, false teaching is another way that we can cause a Christian to stumble. So listen up, elders. I'm talking to me and you, Steve. Future elders, Dave or any other men who aspire to the pastorate, deacons, Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers. This is especially for us. We can cause a Christian to stumble because we teach them error. We can tell someone that something is not sin when it is sin because we have not searched the scriptures well enough and have been too quick to open our mouth and render a verdict to them. I've, I've done that. We can mischaracterize God. Oh, may God help us. We can mischaracterize God and cause other Christians to think wrongly about him and therefore not love him the way that they ought to because they're ignorant of him. We can muddy the gospel with law and, and rob our fellow Christians of assurance and joy and peace that they are commanded to have in Christ. We can teach the word in such a way that it becomes a burden to the people of God because we're only telling them the commandments of God and never reminding them of the great grace of the gospel. We can also minimize the duty of the Christian to walk in the law of the Lord at all times and cause them to sin in their laxity because they don't believe the commandments of God are important because we led them to believe that obedience to God is not important. I've not even begun to scratch the surface with all the ways that the word of God could be mishandled that would cause a fellow disciple to sin. But let it be known among us that like James says in James chapter 3 verse 1, not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for we know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. False teaching, erroneous teaching has been the cause of the sin and downfall of many brothers and sisters. So let it be known among us, all of us, that there ought to be fear and trembling every time we open our mouths to speak about God. Because in doing so, we are either doing good or harm to the souls of our fellow Christians. There is no middle ground. A third example. We can cause one another to sin by giving bad advice. That's very common. That's very common. One Christian, imagine this. Maybe you've been here. One Christian goes to another Christian asking for advice about a situation, or they're telling a story about something happening to them, and then what happens? Their fellow Christian gives them the wisdom of the world instead of the wisdom of God. Right? Oh, you should just divorce him. I wouldn't put up with that. And there's no biblical grounds for divorce. Or, you know, and I'll be 
polite with my language because there are children among us. When my husband wants to be intimate and I don't want to, I just tell him to watch a video on his phone. Maybe you should too. Or I think you should just tell him off, man. Just go off on him and let him know exactly what you think. Or, hey, man, I just fight that guy. <laughs> right? I, I wouldn't even waste my time trying to talk. Don't go to HR. Just square up on him. Or I, I don't think I'd let that go, man. That's too much to forgive. Or, hey, bro, that girl's cute. Maybe you should get with her, but she's a known unbeliever. Right? Or, or try this one. One Christian goes to another and tells a story about something they've done. And in the process, maybe unbeknownst to them, they actually end up confessing to something that was sinful. And their fellow Christian says, I think that's normal. I think what you did is normal. And I don't mean that they're trying to sympathize, saying, I understand why you would do that, but... <laughs> Right? But no, I know I just think that's normal. And they don't act like it's a problem to be addressed. And they, they soothe the conscience of their fellow Christian who is actually caught in sin instead of gently rebuking them, calling them to repentance, and helping them to come out from under it. And real quick, in case you think that I'm embellishing any of my examples, I have heard those exact things come out of people's mouths. And if I haven't heard them directly, I had someone come to me and say, hey, someone told me to do this. What does the Bible say? And the answer is no. <laughs> I'm not making these things up. I have heard them. What a shame. How disgraceful. You're causing one of Christ's little children to sin with your bad advice. A fourth example, you can cause someone to sin and this one's going to get me called a legalist, probably. The next two, actually. Just go ahead and write them down. You can address all your hate mail to Stephen. Um, you can cause someone to sin by recommending ungodly media to them. Hey, man, you've got to watch this movie. Or, dude, you've got to listen to this new record I checked out. Or you've got to read this book. And you know that the content of that entertainment medium is godless. You know it. You know it's godless. Look, and I'm not going to give you a list of like what you can and cannot watch. I'm not going to give you the pharisaical list of yes and no. I'm going to let the Spirit of God help you in that as he's done to me. But in your recommendation, you know that the content of that entertainment is godless, that it's vile, that it's vulgar, that it's blasphemous, that it's pornographic. That it espouses a worldview that is antithetical to the word of God. But nevertheless, you encourage your fellow believer to drink it in just as you have. Even though you shouldn't have. And you have no regard for how it might negatively affect your brother or sister as they follow Christ and are trying to kill their sin and are trying to be holy as God is holy. And so you cause them to sin. Or fifth, and this one's probably going to get people mad at me. You can cause someone to sin by the way that you dress and carry yourself and present yourself. Now, real quick, I want to clarify. I am not uh, being my Christian Baptist background saying that you've got to wear a dress at all times if you're a woman. Right? So don't misunderstand me here. But I have seen so many Christian women that think nothing of wearing in public skin-tight leggings with a top that does not cover their rear end or wearing a top where their breasts are falling out in front of everyone. That's immodest. 
I'm not telling you that you have to dress like a Puritan, but I am telling you you have to obey Peter's command in 1 Peter to be modest. It's not a fashion trend, it's sinful. Ladies, if you're dressing inappropriately, you are being a temptress. And if you're married, you're disrespecting your husband. But you're presenting your own self as a stumbling block for your Christian brothers. Or, on the other hand, Christian men who think nothing of removing their shirt in mixed company and improper context simply because it's hot outside. Or, I'll let you think on this, men wearing skin-tight pants that draw attention away from their face. Yeah, you got it. But more than just clothing, there is a way that both men and women can present themselves and carry themselves that is immodest. The word choice that you use, your whole self-presentation can be intentionally seductive and sensual even if you're properly clothed. And that too can be a stumbling block. Now hear me, I want to be clear. If a person wants to lust, they will lust. I used to be a pornography addict, I promise. If a person wants to lust, they will lust. It doesn't matter what you wear or what you do. And the sin of lusting is always on the sinner who does the lusting. But if you are one or if you're the one who gave occasion to it because of your immodesty or your lack of thought or your intentionally seductive words, you are responsible for being a tempter and causing your brother to sin or causing your sister to sin. I'm grateful that that's not a huge problem among us, but nevertheless, it needs said. Sixth and lastly, for the sake of time, you can cause another Christian to sin by your own general loose living. By giving a bad example to your fellow Christian is what I mean. You can cause them to sin by that. You're always being watched. I hope you know that. And I don't necessarily mean that in a negative way. Right? But you're, you're always being watched. The things that you do, the way that you speak, the things that you abstain from, people take notice. Your fellow Christians are always watching you. Some of you have become Sabbatarian in this church, praise God, because you began to ask, hey Dave, why don't you go out to eat with us on Sunday? People are watching. People pay attention to the things that you do. And if you're relaxed about following Christ... If your discipleship is nonchalant, if you're not worried about killing sin, if your being a Christian is casual and not serious, your fellow Christians will notice. And you may end up making them think that your laxity and unfaithfulness is actually normal. And instead of stirring up the brethren to greater faith, and zeal, and faithfulness, and good works, you're teaching them by example that they shouldn't be too zealous for Christ. And your complacency, apathy, and spiritual laziness, and moral laxity becomes a stumbling block for others because they begin to imitate you. While according to Christ, you would need to repent and be zealous for him once again, and take up your cross you're making others think that taking Jesus too seriously is what fanatics do, not normal Christians. And in doing so, you cause one of these little ones to sin. Brothers and sisters, it is all too easy to cause another Christian to sin. But it's not just easy, it's terrifying. 
Because now we come to the warning of Christ. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. The image that Jesus gives here is that of a stone weighing hundreds of pounds, literally a donkey stone, right? It takes livestock to, to, to turn this thing, is a millstone. A stone weighing hundreds of pounds being set around a person's neck and having them hurled into the deep. What a horrible way to die. What a horrible way to go. No hope, no escape, no mercy, not even a proper burial. Furthermore, how awful of a fate is it to drown? How awful of a fate is that? Right, that's a great fear of many people, uh, including myself. Sinking to the bottom of the sea with a great stone around your neck. Imagine that. Certain death, never to return to the surface, never to return to the land of the living again. But Jesus says, it would be to your advantage to die like this than to cause someone to sin. It would be better to die a horrible death than to cause a Christian to sin. And why is that? Well, it's because the actual punishment for doing this is much, much worse than drowning. It's much, much worse than being buried at the bottom of the sea. Given the verses that follow, that we'll be looking at in a couple weeks from now, given the verses that follow about hell and eternal punishment, Jesus is referring here to damnation, an eternity under the white-hot wrath of God. Of course you would be better off to drown to death than to undergo the severity of the wrath of God. Drowning is much more preferable to hell. Right? In the words of Matthew Henry, it's better to drown in a sea than to burn in an ocean of fire. But nevertheless, what's implied here is that those who cause Christians to sin go to hell. Those who cause the little ones to fall away, those who hinder the spiritual growth of the people of God, those who tempt Christ's little children will suffer eternally for their sin. Jesus is deadly serious about this. But why? Why is Jesus so serious about this? Why is there such a horrible punishment for those who cause his people to sin? Because there is children. That's why. Because there's children. Parents, you know how much you love your kids. And you're a sinner. In the words of Jesus, if you love your kids and you're evil, how much more does your father love you? How much more does God love you? Parents, you know that if someone hurts your kids, it's different. It's a new level of rage because you love your children. I'll tell you this, if I ever walked into a room and saw someone hurting my little daughter, Pastor Steve is going to have to preach the following Lord's Day because I'm going to jail. Right? I'm going to defend my daughter. Jesus is telling us that it makes him furious when his children are spiritually assaulted. It makes him furious. When his children are taught by word or example to not follow him, when they're taught to turn away from him and toward their own spiritual harm, he is enraged. And this enraged Christ will take vengeance on those who harmed his children because he loves them so. Because he loves his children. 
this should scare us. I know I have a reputation for being a hellfire and brimstone preacher. Deal with it, it's in the text. Right? Jesus said it. But this should seriously scare us. Jesus says that those who cause his children to sin will go to hell. And I submit to you that most of us, if not every single one of us in some way, are guilty of doing exactly what this text tells us brings, upon, brings damnation upon us. I'd say all of us have done this. Who among us can say that they've never been too quick to give an unbiblical sinful opinion? Who among us can ever say that they have not tempted, whether before or after, especially after you've become a Christian, that you've never tempted someone to sin? Who among us can say that they've given a fantastic example of what being a disciple is at all times? Who among us has not taught a doctrine, maybe not formally, but privately, you've told someone what you think, that you now disagree with yourself? You taught them error. Who among us has never given ungodly advice? Who among us has never been too harsh or judgmental toward a fellow Christian? We're guilty. And left on our own, in our guilt, the curse Christ pronounces here is upon us. And that's why... As strange as it may sound, Christ himself is our only hope here. For he himself has paid the penalty for our sins. On his cross, he himself took the wrath of God in our place for our sins, including the sin of causing others to stumble. The one whom we have offended by causing his children to stumble is the only one that we can go to in order to avoid his wrath. And the one whom we've offended is the same one who has put away our sin by paying, it for, by paying for it himself. So then we must, by faith, come to Christ for forgiveness for this awful sin. For he alone is the Savior, and apart from him we remain guilty and under his curse in this text. Christ is our only hope, so we must go to him in faith. And he will forgive everyone who comes to him. Even those who have hurt his children and caused them to sin. This is amazing. This is amazing. We must go to the one whose children we've hurt. And he's already paid for our sin and our place. What mercy. This is as if, I was, I was speaking with, with our, our deacon Bob Knox about this. This is as if... Uh, I walked in on a man punching my little daughter in the face and called the police, and then when they got there, I told them to arrest me and let the man go free. I'm not doing that. But what Jesus has done for us is so much more than that. He suffered God's wrath for us, for what we've done to his own children. This is mercy you cannot fathom. This is grace. And this mercy is ours if we will come to him in faith. As the Apostle John tells us in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he, God, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John says he's just to do this. It is legally just for him to do this because Jesus has paid for what we've done. 
And John reminds us that we will be cleansed from all our unrighteousness if we come to Christ. Even what's implied is even the unrighteousness of causing others to stumble. What a merciful God to forgive those who hurt his own people. What mercy. Praise be to him forever. And Christian, this is for you. Christian, this is for you. Do you see that you don't just need Christ at the beginning of your walk with him? That you don't just need him to get into the door, but you need him every day. You need him every day. As Paul says, we live by faith in the Son of God who gave himself up for us. We live by faith in him every day. We receive new mercies and forgiveness every day from Christ. We need him every single moment because we are so, so sinful. There will never be a day that we do not need our Lord and the mercy that he has purchased for us in his cross. There will never be a day that we don't need him. So then the application to all of this is quite clear. Where we are guilty, we must repent. We must confess our sin to God. Plead mercy based on what Christ has done on his cross in our place. We must confess and turn away from anything that we've done that is causing or has caused another Christian to sin. And God promises us mercy. And then bearing fruit with that repentance, we need to go to our brothers and sisters as we're able, who we know we've given the bad advice to, whom we know we've recommended godlessness to, whom we know we've been too harsh towards, and ask for their forgiveness as well. That's what it looks like in this situation to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. But know this, there is life through repentance and faith in Christ. So this is no burden for us. This is mercy. And secondly, we must begin to even more seriously consider how we live. Even more than we have been. We must evaluate ourselves and our choices. We must evaluate the witness that we're giving. Not just to the world, but to our fellow Christians. We must consider deeply how the things we do, say, teach whatever affect the body of Christ and in doing so ask the question how will this help or hinder my fellow believers and listen if you're sitting there saying in your sin I might add I'm not a role model and I'm not my brother's keeper let me sternly remind you that yes you are yes you are you are absolutely your brother's keeper with regard to these things. This is one of the ways that we receive Christ's people like he's been telling us to since verse 33 of this chapter. By caring for the spiritual well-being of the household of God. So yes, we're a family. And yes, we are our brother's keeper. And we must honor that stewardship given to us by the Lord of the church. But as we come to a close now, let me give you a final word of encouragement. I want you to see in this text Christ's love for you, Christian. I want you to see Christ's love for his people. Yes, it's a warning. I'm not trying to, to minimize that. Yes, it's intended to cause us to repent and be careful of how we live. But at the same time, this text should really encourage us as the people of God. Because in it, we see the simple but profound truth that Jesus loves you. Christian, Jesus loves you. If you're an unbeliever and you're here with us, come to Christ in faith and become one of his people and he will love you.
he will treat you the same. You'll come out from under his wrath and be adopted into the family of God and treated as one of his people. But seeing the wrath and anger of Christ in this warning should remind you how jealous he is for you. It should remind you how much he loves you. You see, I was talking to Pastor Steve about this last week. Love necessitates wrath. It absolutely does. Our culture doesn't think that way. But love necessitates wrath. If you love something, if you really love something or someone, you will have great wrath against anyone or anything who harms it. If you love children, you will hate pedophilia. If you love marriage, you will hate adultery. If you love God's design for sex, you will hate homosexuality. If you love God's design of man and woman, you will hate transgenderism. If you love hard work, you will hate theft. If you love life, you will hate murder. If you love honesty, you will hate lies. If you love the truth, you will hate error. If you love God, you will hate sin. And since Christ loves his children, he hates all who would dare harm them. His love necessitates his wrath. And that's why we see his wrath here in the text. Because he loves his people. And that's why he damns those who do not repent of this sin. It's because he loves you. So, oh, little flock, people of God, children of Christ, know this for a fact. He loves you with a fierce love. So much so that not only did he die for you, but he will not suffer those who harm you to go unpunished if they do not repent. Beloved, he loves us, and that's why we're called the beloved. So remember that, and rejoice in that, and love him, and love one another for his sake. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for this word that you've given to us from the lips of your Son. We ask God that you would help us to take seriously the words of Jesus here. God, we know that you give us warnings in your word that are designed in such a way that the people of God, those who have actually been converted, will listen to the warnings and heed them and fear your threatenings so that by your grace we will persevere. God, though that may seem strange to some of us, I pray that nevertheless you would help your people to listen to the warnings. God, help us to repent sincerely and consider how we're living. Help us to be a godly people. And Lord, set deep in our hearts that you really do love us. Set it deep in our hearts that you have a fierce love for your people. Because once we know that, walking in obedience to you will be a joy to us. So please help us, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.